This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. PC leader Doug Ford has been named in a lawsuit by his sister-in-law, the widow of Rob Ford, over his estate, suing, uh, I guess, the family or, or Doug and his brother for about $16 million. Uh, let's bring in Jason Roy, PhD, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Director, Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy at Wilfrid Laurier University, and with us now. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Hey, Scott, thanks for having me. So what is your take just a couple of days out from the big election? Will this lawsuit uh, business, uh, will it hurt the Doug Ford campaign at all, do you think? Yeah, well, Scott, let me tell you, this has been uh, this is one interesting campaign, to say the very least. If you think back from what we began with in January with, uh, with Mr. Brown and then onwards to this, uh, I don't think anybody could have predicted any of the things that have happened uh, a first in many ways. Um, as far as the the uh, the accusations, the lawsuit coming forward the day that it did, uh, interesting timing. I mean, it, it's typically about a three-day news cycle before uh, this type of information would, would sort of uh, manage to hit the entire population, or at least the bulk of the population. Those who pay most attention, of course, get it day one, and then it, it sort of just trinkles down from there. Um, you know, so, so indeed, there will be people that I suspect most everyone in Ontario going into uh, Thursday should be aware of the accusation. Um, uh, whether or not that changes the outcome, I suppose, would depend on a number of factors. Uh, the, the obvious one is credibility. Do they believe it? Um, so that's one of the questions. And I suspect those uh, strong PC supporters, those who are, are, are strong supporters of Ford, are not going to be, uh, you know, not going to change at all based on this new information or this right. accusation that's come forward. Um, the, the question is, does it, does it impact those who are thinking, uh, either those who are on the fence about which way they were going to go, those who are sort of um, soft PC supporters that now are starting to question it. And it's not so much even the lawsuit itself. It's all of the things that then come, come with this. So, so for example, the, the front page of most uh, major uh, newspaper outlets today, uh, websites, uh, news, news shows, as, as, as we're doing now, are all discussing this. So this is, they've changed the channel, effectively, of this campaign that now people are starting to question, you know, did, did, you know, did this happen? Uh, does it then bring into some, you know, some question about whether or not is Ford as competent as a business person as he has suggested he is? Uh, if you start to dig into what the claims state, it, it has to do with mismanagement, uh, lack of experience, and a whole number of other factors that all could have people start to reconsider, especially those soft PC supporters uh, or those who have still yet to decide how they're going to vote. Here's what Andrea Horbath, NDP leader, had to say. It does raise more questions than answers uh, about uh, about um, uh, who Mr. Ford is and the extent to which, you know, the the widow of his uh, late brother and his nieces and nephews are being treated uh, in terms of their financial stability. Uh, Jason, is it a low blow to get into family politics? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I would have left out the latter, perhaps. The you know, but the former statement, I completely agree with. It's the idea. Uh, what you know does this lead to some questions about the competence and the uh, and the experience of the of the candidate uh, raising the issue of the family? I mean, I suppose in fairness, that is who's launched this uh, this lawsuit. Um, there are there are uh, and again, I, I mean, obviously, it's, this has been unproven in court, so it's at this point simply accusations. Um, given the fact that it's coming from family, I suppose uh, there's nothing you can do than to recognize you know, who's who's launched the suit. There was uh, a picture I saw on Twitter. I don't know if it's uh, 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 authentic or not. It was of Andrea Horvath's son looking a little less than favorable. And, man, just the, the, the barrage of complaints, like, how dare you? This is so low. How can you possibly do such a thing as post a picture like this and blah, blah, blah? 
I mean, aren't we doing the same thing here with, you know, this the politics between what's ob- what has obviously been a, a troubled family with Rob Ford? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the direct the direct implications, even back to the previous uh, Ontario provincial election campaign, uh, Horvath's son was was brought into the media spotlight a bit at that time as well, I believe. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not quite sure that I would fully fully accept that comparison in the sense that um, it, it was uh, it was uh, Rob Ford's widow who has launched this campaign has made it public. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily uh, a separate group trying to draw out these sort of uh, these sort of comparisons and, and coming after the family. Um, the, the timing of it, I mean, again, you have the two sides. The Ford campaign has come forward with a number of statements uh, suggesting that this is completely false. Um, and, and even uh, at this point, which I would think is perhaps a little bit more alarming in my view, uh, in terms of the way the campaign has handled this, starting to make accusations or suggestions, rather, about the, um, the, the lifestyle of, uh, of, of Rob Ford's widow. What uh, you you mentioned the timing of all of this, Jason? Uh, how does that resonate with Ontario voters? And I guess similar to what you said before, if you're a supporter, you're a supporter. If you're not, you're not. Yeah, I mean it's the awareness factor, right? So, so how you know how how many days does it take before the entire you know the voting electorate is is, is aware of, of the story of the accusations and whether or not they've then formed opinion as to the credibility uh, of the claim? Um, so three days is probably uh, you know it, it's. <laughs> It's probably bang on in terms of if this remains a story in the media cycle for the next couple of days, and I suspect it's going to have a uh, awareness that's going to be very high. Uh, but again, how you interpret it, how you uh, perceive it, in, in some cases even colored by partisan lenses and, and, and ideological preferences. You may, you may hear the story and decide that there's nothing to it based on your thoughts of, of, of Doug Ford, how he presents himself, or you might think something completely different, uh, again, depending on how you, uh, you know, how you view the campaign to start with, or the candidates, rather, to start with. Uh, let's move on, talk about uh, the change of direction for the, the Win Liberals, obviously coming out on the weekend and pretty much conceding defeat and saying that they're not going to be forming the next government, but asking you to vote Liberal anyway in order to stop the extremism and the radicalism of the other two parties. Uh, how does that play? Are you, and are you, surpri- are, you, are, you, are you surprised by the strategy? Sure, yeah, it's a head scratcher for me. I, I don't quite understand if there's, uh, you know, I, I don't know that you can you can manipulate a vote, especially in our system, to ensure a minority government. Um, it, it has some real danger involved in this. One is that the, the liberal candidates, I mean, it has to be discouraging, I would assume, for, for many of them, yeah. uh, to have their leaders say, hey, we, we've lost. I mean, if you, if you try to make the analogy to any type of team sport, for example, it would probably not the message you want to give your players at the halftime talk. Um you know, for the NDP, I suspect it's troubling as well in the sense that, it, you know, it, it could in some ways, uh, I suppose in a positive way, lead folks to say, okay, well, the Liberals don't have a chance anyhow. They've admitted such. Maybe we will plant our vote in the NDP in an effort not to to have a, a Ford or PC or Ford-led PC government. Um, on the other hand, if it encourages some Liberals to say, well, you know what? recognizing this, maybe I will support my local candidate. They've been fantastic. It could ultimately end up splitting the vote uh, between the NDP and Liberal candidates, uh, which ultimately might lead to a PC victory in those, those ridings where it's that close. Um, from a PC perspective, I suspect, uh, you know, it's probably good news. This, this is, again, de- deflecting the attention of the campaign onto something different. 
for at least a day or so and uh, and leading many people to you know to question i mean has what are they thinking? What are they doing? Many over the weekend said that, like, my goodness, I don't know why they're doing this. Why would they possibly throw in the towel and, and all of their candidates underneath the campaign bus in, in one fell swoop? And then we realize that they've got numbers that say that they may not even obtain official party status. So they may get so decimated that they don't even have uh, official party status, which, of course, comes with lots of financial perks. So have they pretty much written off uh, the campaign, written off the candidates, written off the voters and just said, at this point, we're just trying to hang on to official party status. So at least if, at least if we, we can fudge in on a minority, we'll at least get enough seats to hold official party status and get the funding we need. Sure, I suspect that's that's pretty close to the to the thinking behind this decision. Uh, it, it, it's no secret that Wynn is not a popular uh, politician, uh, but by far. And I mean, I think that the numbers that we've seen from from numerous studies, including what I suspect to be internal, suggest that even that name association um, has a negative impact on support. So perhaps that's part of the effort is for Wynn in the, at, at this point to try to detach herself from the other candidates, in that hopes of of maintaining. Uh, I mean, some. Some projections are putting the Liberals uh, somewhere be- between one and five seats, um, which which would not give them that status required uh, to to maintain the funding and, and what have you. So that may in fact be what's what's uh, what the efforts this past weekend are, are are trying to achieve. Do the Liberals understand why nobody likes Kathleen Wynne? Do they get it? Uh, you, because they they really it, it. it really appears like they still don't get it. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting one. Uh, you know, there's, there's been studies that have, that have asked about the opinions, and then they ask you to to explain or to voice why is it you dislike this individual. And a lot of people have a hard time answering that follow-up question. They know they don't like the individual, but they, they can't seem to completely articulate the reasons why. Perhaps it's a combination of everything, 15 years of liberal government, numerous policy decisions that have been made. Perhaps it's the individual. I mean, there could be a number of factors. Uh, regardless of what the reasoning may be, the, the bottom line is that the, the name association really doesn't seem to help uh, and is likely hurting, in some cases, the, uh, the liberal vote share in Ontario. There's a very interesting uh, column today in the National Post by Kelly McFarlane, and the headline is, uh, the Liberals don't know why uh, Wynn is unpopular. Maybe I can help with that. And it, it, it's really just a lot of common sense. And, and coming after the McGinty government and saying she was going to change a lot of that and never really did. And just the sheer arrogance of blowing off the Auditor General, blowing off the Financial Accountability Officer, blowing off citizens by calling us bad actors and blowing off all the experts that said the Green Energy Act's going to end up in a train wreck, whether they were, and this was from all sides, this was including her own people. Do you think at the end of the day it's it's right in front of our nose and it's just plain arrogance and not listening to the taxpayer? Yeah, I mean, it may be, although in, in defense, I mean, if it is even defensible, I mean, lots of other factors involved in many of these decisions. Uh, but yeah, perhaps it is this, this uh, long-term you know, accumulation of all of these various factors that have uh, that have uh, developed into this dislike, and maybe why some people can't articulate exactly what it was that they that led them to this point of not not uh, not liking this candidate. Uh, they just can't simply articulate because it's been this accumulation of all of these various. Well, things. again, I remember I remember Jason listening uh, or reading polls prior to the election campaign even beginning, and it listed what the priorities were of Ontarians. And if you looked at the Liberal platform, none of that was on there. And and to me, it just seems that this lady, this party, is not listening. 
And they're not listening to the the Auditor General. They're not listening to the Financial Accountability Officer. They're not listening to any experts. They're just following their own ideology and and just blowing us off like they're smart and we're stupid. Yeah. Well, and, and and perhaps now, it's, uh, as of as of the, the the news of this weekend, they've come to realize this and have accepted that defeat is uh, is imminent here. But you know, I, I I draw the comparison, and everybody likes to draw the comparison between Donald Trump in the United States and what's happened down there. And I draw the I draw the comparison between the liberals and the Democrats. It, it, and the same thing, the Democrats are standing up down south and pointing at this guy who is exactly everything that everybody says he is. But the point is. Americans would still rather have him than your person. And, and that's the, that seems to be the disconnect that we're seeing up here, is that they don't understand that they are just not relating to the average voter. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 the comparisons I, I know have been made, uh, you know, and, and perhaps that's exactly the case. Um, it, it, you know, it's an interesting analogy. We start to compare back to the U.S. and, of course, and you get Trump and, and Ford coming in together. Uh, maybe they are more relatable to to the general population, to individuals that that say, "Hey, look, this seems like a simple solution." Uh, and you know, here I'll, I'll, I'll give you another. Of- I'll give you another example, Jason. Uh, you know, Rob uh, Doug Ford's talking about firing the six million dollar man, and everybody knows it's going right. to cost you twelve million dollars to fire the six million dollar man. It's not worth it. But I don't think Ontario voters care about that. What they care about is the change in attitude. Whereas at least here's a guy that's pissed off about it, as opposed to a lady that just goes, "Oh well, I don't know. We'll have to look into it." I think it's a change in attitude, and and that's why nobody cares about the costed platform. Yeah, maybe you're right, but let me let me push you on that then, Scott, and say, well, what happens then if you're making these promises and nobody expects you to do any of this stuff? What do you end up with? Again, I think different between. You know what you end up with? You know what you end up with, Jason? Anything better than what we have or what we had with the NDP? That's, I believe, the conclusion Ontarians are coming to. Uh, coming to, yeah. And, I, and I mean, they're going to hold their nose and vote. Yeah. yeah, it'll be interesting to see how uh, you know how this plays out, and in fact, if we do see some of these changes. Uh, and and uh, you know I, I think coming to power as as the uh, progressive conservatives have have noted, uh, you know they're they're being hesitant to release a fully costed platform and, uh, until they have a full information as to what the situation is, the financial situation is, and they may be right. There may be many things that they come to discover after having a same government power for 15 years uh, that things aren't exactly as we've seen as we've already had some indication. Um, so you know perhaps that's part of it as well. And it may very well limit what they can and cannot do over the next four years. And I suspect in, in, in many cases, you are correct as well, that people recognize it uh, and they prefer to have at least somebody tell them that you know this would be a solution, although they recognize and won't be able to follow through with it. Jason Roy has been with his PhD, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Director, Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy at Wilfrid Laurier University. Jason, fascinating discussion. It's going to be interesting. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. I, I appreciate it. Look forward to Thursday. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Extreme liberals are warning us about the other extreme parties. I find that real ripe. Again, what happened to the center? For those of us in the center, who do we vote for? Because Kathleen Wynne has taken the liberals so far to the left, you can't tell them apart from the NDP. And then they're talking about uh, Ford being extreme and the NDP being extreme. Well, why did you follow the NDP down the garden path and create this wide swath up the middle where no one is represented? I would suggest, Kathleen Wynne, you are solely responsible for the radicalism and extremism we see in Ontario politics today. 
And there's so many wondering why there's so many people within the liberal umbrella trying to understand why no one likes Kathleen Wynne. Why don't you ask the auditor general? Why don't you ask the financial accountability officer? Why don't you ask some of the citizens that she called bad actors? These people ignore any sort of advice that doesn't follow their own ideology, whether it's from their party or not. And then they wonder what the hell happened. I'll point back to polls well before the election campaign started that suggested what was important to Ontarians, and the Liberals haven't addressed any of that. They're too busy saving the world for everyone else. And they are just out of touch with what Ontarians need. End of story. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe. Uh, we'll touch on this stuff. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I, um, I, you know, there's a great article today in the National Post by Kelly McFarland. We tried to get, uh, to get him on and unfortunately unable to do it today. But this very much reminds me of the, the Democrats in the United States just standing around with their thumb up the rear end wondering how Donald Trump ever got elected. How did a wacko guy like this ever get elected? To which my response would be, why aren't you asking yourself why the American electorate would, uh, electorate would rather pick him than your person? That's the point here. And that's exactly what's happening in Ontario. We've got an auditor general and a financial accountability officer that say their numbers are fudged. We've got hydro bills up the yin-yang that's being passed up to the next generation. We've got millions in scandals, billions in scandals. It's not about the policy. It's lack of due diligence and cost analysis and overpaying for all of this. But they don't seem to care. And now we've got Kathleen Wynne crying on TV that you don't like her as if she's the victim. She's not the victim here. The Ontario taxpayer is the victim. It's unbelievable what's unfolding in front of us as we live in a land of extremes. As soon as the next political party drives right up through the center, they'll get everybody's vote. But when you take your liberal party to the extreme left, how can you be surprised that the opposition is going to the extreme right? How can you be surprised? This is the Ontario that has resulted after 15 years of liberal rule. And now they're looking at themselves as if you're stupid and they're smart. They just don't get it. You're bad actors. I'm tired of people at Queen's Park who are completely out of touch with what the average Ontarian is going through. Starring Kathleen Wynne. But she is an absolutely brilliant politician for falling on her sword this past weekend, which this is all about official party status. Because it, not only have the liberals with their own polling realized they're not going to win, they're also, they also may lose the damn party. They may not even get enough votes to sustain official party status, which comes with lots of fiscal perks. That's what they're, they just threw all of their candidates underneath the bus so they could at least remain with eight and the official party status somewhere. It's amazing how slick and sly these people are. Just ask the Auditor General. Just ask the accountants of the world. Just ask the Financial Accountability Office. And people are wondering why Doug Ford doesn't have a platform? What difference does it make? It's not going to matter anyway whose platform, once they get in and they read the books that the Auditor General's been complaining about for years. All right. 
Is Michael with us? Let's bring in Michael Tobe. Uh, <laughs> I know. Poor Michael. We're switching gears here. Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, U.S. President Donald Trump wanting to pardon himself, but then qualifying all of that by saying, it's not like I need to pardon myself because I never really did anything wrong. Except, of course, load up your revolver and blow off another one of your toes. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist and, of course, contributor to The Washington Times. He's with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. It's interesting times we're listening in. Living definitely in, is. You are being in. You're absolutely right, Scott. I agree. So uh, let's start with the Ontario election. Uh, sure. Just give us uh, your, your quick thought as we head into the last uh, couple of days here. Uh, obviously, a Doug Ford family feud lawsuit going on. And, uh, and obviously, Kathleen Wynne conceding defeat. What do you see going into the, the last couple of days here? Well, I mean, obviously, it'd be no surprise to you or any of the listeners that uh, Mike syndicated column in Troy Media this week. I endorsed Doug Ford as premier, but that that's pretty obvious, and I don't think anyone would have been terribly shocked. I thought you were going to go NDP this time, Michael. Exactly. Well, I was thinking green, but I thought, <laughs> you know what, Mike Schreiner probably has enough votes in Guelph. It's okay. But, right. you know, and look, all kidding aside, I mean, I, I'm tossing it in just for the hell of it. But, yeah, in terms of what's going on for the last few days, it has been kind of interesting. Um, the uh, lawsuit issued by Rob Ford's widow, Renata, uh, yesterday, I think, threw a lot of people for a loop. Um, I, I don't think it's going to have a huge effect, quite frankly, Scott, on the election, simply because it happened very late in the campaign. I think you look at it more as, say, a family struggle or a family issue rather than a political matter, which it really is. Mm. And ultimately, in the end, I think people just, you know, are going to sort of look at this issue and say it kind of looks a little staged. I mean, it happened three days, or it was the uh, the lawsuit was issued three days before the election campaign. Yes, obviously, Doug Ford and his family were aware of it and even acknowledged it, that, you know, that there had been some discussions over several weeks, so they knew it was coming. But it's disappointing to them that it happened at this late stage of the game. Um, but is it really going to affect a lot of people? Uh, firstly, number one, no one knows one way or the other what's happening in this case. You know, none of these accus- ac- allegations have been proven in court. Number two, it's going to be years until we actually find out most of the particulars or even get a judgment one way or the other. So if this had happened weeks ago or months ago, who knows? We'd probably be talking about things in a very different fashion because it would have allowed people to sit and stew about it for a while. But because we're so close to the end, my guess is that, yeah, it'll cause a bit of a kerfuffle for the next few days. You know, there's maybe one or two ridings that could tip over, say, to the NDP just because of what's happening, if it's in a sort of a too-close-to-call margin. But is it going to really change the nature of the election? As much as the political left would like it to, Scott, it's not going to, quite frankly. Um, and in terms of Kathleen Wynne, very briefly, because I'm sure you've talked about it plenty of times already on your radio program, as other people have talked about in the media, including me, um, it was a surprising move. I mean, it sort of rings a bell in terms of if people know their history. It's very similar to what B.C. Premier Ujjal Dessange tried to do in 2001, when he was leading a new Democratic government uh, there. But the difference was the NDP and, and Mr. Desange realized early on that they were dead in the water. So he basically acknowledged what was going to happen, but with a very different tone and tenor than, say, Kathleen Wynne, 
who basically had most of her staff and many liberal supporters working hard for weeks, and then with six days left to go, she basically acknowledged defeat that it's all over. I would think as a liberal, you know, and obviously I'm not one, but you would sort of put yourselves in their shoes. That would be really deflating to hear your leader and the premier of the province say that, even if behind the scenes, in private, you knew exactly what was going to happen and you knew that you were going to lose. You're supposed to be, as the leader of a party, to, as, to be someone who puts on a brave face from A to Z, from start to finish. And then when you lose on election night, you can say whatever you want. You know, you can resign that night. You can make uh, various comments. You can say how disappointed you are. Don't let everybody who's working for you down, even if it obviously looks hopeless at this stage. You know, there is the, there is the nature of the game of politics, and it's the, the day-to-day aspects of it that, uh, you know, a lot of people are not really familiar with or aware of. But quite frankly, if you put yourself in Kathleen Wynne's shoes, even though you know why she's doing it, to protect the party status for the party in the Ontario legislature the next time around, or to play a kingmaker, or in this case, queenmaker, in terms of a possible minority government, it's just a bad strategy overall. And she has been condemned a lot by it, both by people on the right and the left of the political spectrum. And deservedly so. Is this less about uh, uh, conceding defeat and, 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 and less about the candidates and, and more about them doing research, not only realizing with their own numbers that they're not going to be in power, but also realizing with their own numbers that they may lose uh, official party status and they may not have any party at all? So right. is this about all sustaining those eight seats to get the, the financial perks that come with official party status at this point? Well, I certainly think it is, um, and I think others do as well. Uh, but it just, it just looks really bad. I think, if anything, it makes a lot of people who were sitting on the fence, and this would be on the progressive side of the spectrum, the left side of the spectrum, who just couldn't decide whether they wanted to go along with the NDP wave or stay their traditional voting route and, and stay with the Liberal Party, and hopefully a few MPPs would be elected in and there would be at least some representation, you would think in certain cases this would be enough to sway them to say, to heck with win, to heck with the Liberal Party. They've given up on the campaign. Well, then in turn, I'm giving up on them, and then park your votes with the NDP. I, I think she did it out of desperation to save party status, because as people may know, if the Liberals fall below eight seats in the Ontario legislature, that being eight seats on election night, and they only have, let's say, six or seven MPPs, the government in power, be it the PCs or the NDP, have no obligation to basically change the rules if they see fit and give them official party status, which would mean more research dollars and more dollars to be spent on staff. It would also mean that the Liberals would not be entitled to ask questions in the Ontario legislature as well. So the NDP and the APCs are not obligated to do that. And if the Liberals fall under the eight, well, you know what? Tough luck. And you'll have to sit it out for the next few years and fight again, you know, during the next election. If, so, that, if that does happen and they do lose official party status, has yeah. there been precedents in the past where other governments will say, you know what, we'll give you official party status anyway? Does that happen? It's rare, but it has happened here and there. It's happened in some federal legislatures. Uh, I think, as I'm not mistaken, it also happened federally with the NDP at one point. I can't remember the election, unfortunately, offhand, but it has occurred before. Um, but look, for example, when the... Uh, 
when the federal PCs went down from 157 to two seats in the 1993 federal election, well, I mean, they were given the opportunity to ask questions, but they didn't actually hold official party status there. There were only two of them. There was Mm. was Jean Charest and, um, oh, good God, uh, Elsie Wayne. Those were the only Mm. two who were there at the time. So it was a long time ago, but... Generally speaking, yes, there is a president, but you don't have to be. You don't have to be a nice guy in politics. It's not. It's not required. It's not necessary. It's not. It's not part of the rules. So, frankly, after what the liberals have done for fifteen years in government, if I were either uh, Doug Ford or, or Andrea Horvath, and I had the chance to actually push the liberals into no party status, basically sitting as a group of independents with no ability to earn money for research or ask questions. Heck with it. I'd let them sit. Yeah. No, I, I think most would do the same. All right. Let's move to the United States. Uh, lots of conversation about a tweet from Donald Trump and a, an appearance by Rudy Giuliani uh, over the weekend talking about Trump and the ability to pardon himself. He tweets, of course, that he does have um, uh, the ability to pardon himself, but he doesn't need to. It's not like that is necessary. Why, right. why blow off another toe like that? Well, you see, it's interesting, um, and this was kind of a, an issue that a lot of people, including myself, were looking at and wondering about after he suggested that he could pardon himself. I have to admit, you know, and I, I study this game pretty well, and I, I know a lot of different things, even though obviously I'm not a legal scholar by any means or a constitutional legal scholar. I actually was not sure whether the president had the ability to pardon himself. I knew obviously he had the ability to pardon others, who had criminal charges or convictions behind their records, but it turns out, believe it or not, that the president can pardon himself. And it was by a fellow by the name of John Yu, who may not mean a lot of things to people, but he was a legal advisor under President George W. Bush. And what he pointed out to a number of organizations, including, although I'm not sitting in front of it, I believe CBS News reported it, is that in Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, The president, that being any president, Donald Trump or otherwise, has apparently virtually unlimited pardon power, which means that he can grant uh, pardons or reprieves for any offenses, with the one exception being any charges or cases of impeachment. So technically, it's true. Donald Trump could pardon himself if, for example, the Russia probe turned into a criminal investigation. He could basically basically pardon himself and the whole uh, Mueller commission, and that would be the end of things. It would basically die right there, with one exception. Rudy Giuliani, the former New York City mayor, who is part of Donald Trump's legal team, uh, said a few days ago on, one of the, on the news circuit that it would not be advisable for the president to do something like that, which obviously is common sense. And he said he would be impeached. Well, that's just it, because if you pardon yourself, you're opening the door to a possible impeachment. I agree, exactly. So, you know, Giuliani, much like most people who are representing the U.S. president, that being Donald Trump, are stating that, you know, Trump is arguing, I've done nothing wrong, I believe I've done nothing wrong. People around him are saying the same thing. So if he's done nothing wrong, there would be no need to pardon himself. So why did he open the door? because it was actually talked about and discussed for a bit as to whether Trump would take some sort of wild uh, wild route in terms of clearing his name. And all of a sudden, the discussion about pardoning himself came up. I don't remember if it was Trump who initiated it or someone else, 
but it soon became Trump's issue, and he started tweeting about it all the time. But the irony is that he's, he's right. Legal scholars, among them John Yu, have decidedly said that, yes, he could pardon himself. Why? Was this an option for Nixon? Well, you see, the difference here was Nixon never – it could have been. I mean, I mean, technically, Nixon could have pardoned himself if Watergate had turned into a major criminal investigation. Where Watergate was at at that point was whether or not Nixon would be impeached. Based on Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, Nixon couldn't have pardoned himself because he was facing impeachment charges. So that's the reason why he doesn't fit under that category. But yes, technically, if the whole thing with Watergate had turned into a purely criminal investigation and criminal charges were being laid against them, 40-plus years ago, believe it or not, Richard Nixon could have ended the whole Watergate scandal if it had moved in that direction by pardoning himself. And imagine the love, uh, the outpouring of love after that. Wow. <laughs> well, he did, well, he didn't have much for many years, although the irony is, it is worth saying, that as the years went along and he basically got, did his time out of the public spotlight, he became a trusted advisor to other U.S. presidents, both Republicans and Democrats, and actually, in many ways, reinvigorated and basically saved his image that had been so shattered and destroyed in the 1970s. It's actually kind of astonishing that upon Nixon's death, he was not the hated man he was. That day, he basically flashed the victory sign and went on the helicopter, hmm. basically just barely avoiding a impeachment and resigning as U.S. president. Uh, all right, uh, let's talk about the Philadelphia Eagles issue. Uh, plan sure. to, uh, like every sports team, championship team, gets to go to the White House and the pomp and circumstance and such. Philadelphia Eagles, uh, I guess, a lot of them, I don't know if it's the majority or most, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of them plan to skip the White House uh, celebration, so right. Trump called it off. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, he called it off, although he actually changed his tune and went in a different route, which is basically to have a celebration for the Philadelphia Eagles fans and others in terms of just, you know, celebrating America, American pride, etc. On these days, I don't remember uh, the spotlight ever being on the fans. It was always that picture in front of the, you know, with the president in front of the teams. Like, yeah. when, do, when do the fans play a part in all of this? <laughs> well, in the Trump presidency, I guess they are. Um I, I, the only thing I can say here is this is the second uh, sports team that has won a title in, in a major sport to have actually declined to attend the White House and meet with the president, with the Golden State Warriors doing that previously. Um, look, you know, I have said this before discussing the issue, not necessarily with the Eagles, but I'll say it again. You don't have to like a U.S. president to appear with a U.S. president, meet a U.S. president, and gain recognition from the U.S. president. He's not giving you an award. He's not naming a day after you. He's, you know, you're not going to be making speeches in front of the crowd. All you're doing is just doing a very in- a simple ceremonial meeting with the president, a meet and greet that lasts a little while, and then you leave and you can say all the terrible things you want about him you know, behind his back or away from the White House. I don't see why a lot of our athletes and sports heroes, no matter what they think of Trump personally, why they just couldn't go speak with him for a bit, meet with him, and leave. Because trust me, even though I can't name any names offhand, and I don't think you could either, there have clearly been athletes who have met with other presidents that they either didn't like or didn't vote for, yet in the end, Scott, they appeared there. And that's what, these, that's what the athletes of the uh, Philadelphia Eagles 
and the Golden State Warriors should have done as well. Michael Tobis with us, Troy Media, syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks for your time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great day. Enjoy the election. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. After backlash from uh, people just getting kind of cranky, kind of upset with the fact that uh, Apple has just a little bit too much control over their lives. And uh, I guess the industry is starting to hear about uh, this sort of thing and about from consu- uh, and from consumers. After backlash, Apple has decided to try to speed up older devices of theirs as well as combat smartphone addiction. I guess this after they were slowing them down. To talk more about all of this, Derek Sarda was with us, president of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca, to find out more. And he is with us now. Derek, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Anytime, Scott. This is uh, an ongoing, uh, I, I guess, debate. Uh, do you find that providers are, 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 uh, and, and manufacturers are being scrutinized more by consumers than they ever have been? They are, but uh, is that with merit? Um, I worry about people blaming other forces when they could uh, make those choices themselves. I know what you're going to say here because, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but you're saying, you know, there's a lot of stuff that users can do right now that they're probably not doing. That being said, are these companies doing enough to make it easy? Well, I don't know if it's it really should be put on the companies. Um, I really think it should be at the at the person. Uh, you know, if we take we take vices in society right now, drinking, cigarettes, gambling. Um, they always say that the first, <laughs> the first part of stopping or slowing down is uh, admitting that you have a problem mm. and, and, then, and then willfully making a choice to change it. And so with the devices, it's the same thing. Sure, Apple and Google and Microsoft and Xbox and PS4, all these things can put timers in their product. It's super, super easy. And really that's all Apple's done is really put a timer in to say, you know, how much have I used this thing? Mm. When, um, you know, you can monitor that yourself. It's sort of like uh, a a technology Fitbit. (laughs) It it is, really. That's all it is. But, I mean, we've been doing this for years. Um, Microsoft Outlook has this, uh, for last three years, has an analytics that can say how long you've been on your email and uh, was it after hours or was it during work hours. Um, it's kind of alarming when I look at it. I, I never stopped. I don't stop working. That's my problem. Uh, and I look at it and I think, okay, well, I spent, uh, you know, 70 hours after hours this week on my email. And uh, so, so what? Is, so what let is, me ask uh, you this question, because you're in the business. Why are you looking at this this uh, th- this device that tells you how long you've been using it? Why would you be doing that? Are you thinking that you're using it too much? Well, we're, right now it's automated. You know, we've we've talked about artificial intelligence and uh, things like Siri and Cortana and uh, Google. Um, these things are starting to infiltrate and be automatic. So, uh, you know, in every every week now, I get an email that uh, says your analytics for the week, and it's right there. I don't have to do anything. I just have to look at it, and I do look at it. And for the last couple of years, I've been conscious of it because, yeah, I am spending a lot of time now. 
I run a company and uh, there's there's lots to do and mm. and I can't just go home at night but yep. um but that worries me because I can see how much time I'm actually spending. So if they make it easy for us to see it, it may put some light bulbs on people's heads to say, "Hey, I'm using this device too much." You know, and 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 I'm do I'm talking about work. What about somebody that's on their iOS and they're playing uh, a Game of Thrones or whatever the game is, and 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 to me that's a waste of time. But mm-hmm. uh, imagine if the thing said, "You use this thirty hours this week with Game of Thrones." That may trigger something in somebody's head saying, you know, "I got to, I got to stop." Or, or what they're going to do is they're going to start looking at their settings for a way to disarm this message. <laughs> that's the well, other that's thing, well, it, it, and that's it, all it is: is a message. It's not, it's not going to cut you off. It's just going to yeah. say, "Hey, you've been on it too long," mm. and you can start, and you can do that now. So, what Apple's done is, is they've have a a grid of all your software, and you can put limits. So you can say, "Outlook, I don't want to use it any more than." Four hours a, a week, and and after that four hours, it's going to prompt you. But you, you can have the ability to keep prompting you, or you can just turn it off. So again, does a does a gambler <laughs> when he gets prompted stop gambling? Does he just stop gambling? The answer is no. So uh, at the in the end, if the phones were equipped with all of these things that we wanted, would we just be disarming them because the phone's telling us what to do now? It's saying stop. Well, I, I had a lot, lot, lot to think. I was looking at parallels when, when you asked me to talk about this thing, and, and I said, uh, the seatbelt. You know, that seatbelt. You know, we're, we're old enough to say that back then, seatbelts weren't. Back when we were kids, yeah, they weren't. We were. We, we rolled around in the back seat of the car. There yeah. were no seatbelts. Um, and then that damn buzzer started going. Yeah. Beep beep, and then it would go on for a minute, and you'd you would ignore it, and then. Uh, it, it became in cars where they would not shut it off, so it would yeah. keep beeping. And the, you know what? It worked because I wear my seatbelt every single time. And, Remember the uh, old days, though? There was people that actually would do the seatbelt seat up before yeah, they could get into the car, behind and then they'd so they sit on it. Yeah. <laughs> I remember well, that. again, there's goes back to my initial thought that we have to have a need to stop. And I think it's more important for kids than it is for adults. And um, because they've grown up with this technology, we didn't grow up with the technology, so it's not such a, a big problem for us. But with kids, it is. They yeah. have an addiction to these things. Well, what about even the parent that did grow that's younger than us that did grow up well, with yeah, this technology? I, I what do I they do? Be, I can't be that old, but yeah, yeah, uh, you're you're right. They grew up with it, and uh, and that's an issue because they do the same, and their kids will do the same, mm. probably to a worse degree. Yeah. So uh, is this just a problem that uh, will never go away then? Well, I, I, I think it's good. I think it's, it's great that it's brought it to light. You can go back to the Facebook conversation we had a couple of weeks ago by are people still going to use Facebook yeah. after all of these uh, problems? And the answer is probably yes, but it might let, let people have another thought in your head saying, I'm using this device too much. I need to stop. I need to go for a walk or I need to do something else. Um, and, and then we can talk about wearables. Wearables are getting smarter. They're going to be able to 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 push that the, those devices uh, that the, those that, that information down to our wrists, so that we can say, you know, I've been using my phone too much, or I haven't walked, or now you're uh, going to get something is up. Now that you're going to get something that says you're wearing that too long, <laughs> <laughs> you've got to take that yeah. off. 
Yeah. So I, I'm excited about the new wearables, actually, because um, they're, they're actually doing something from a medical side. So uh, we're looking at the ability for uh, these watches to have O2 sensors that, that look at our blood glucose yeah. for diabetes. They're mm-hmm. looking at things like uh, uh, not just um, not just your pulse rate, but your uh, systolic and diastolic. Uh, so these are these are these are really good things in people's lives. To you know, right on your wrist, saying, "Hey, your your gl- blood glucose is too high. Uh, let's uh, cut down on sweets or well, whatever it is." Uh, I- I'm excited about that. Yeah, I guess you're not going to hear, "Hey, put down uh, your phone. You're checking your blood sugar too much." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just go and eat. Right. Uh, so let's talk about slowing phones down. This has been an issue. I, I've no. I got an iPhone six. And right. uh, so it's a couple of years old, but it's not really old. Uh, but I guess in your eyes, it's ancient. Uh, oh, that's, that's, that's ancient, <laughs> my friend. Yes. Um, but I have noticed that over the last year, and this was never an issue, now all of a sudden it seems uh, the battery burns out way faster than it ever used to. Is this the battery itself, or is this something happening within the phone? So the answer to that is both. So batteries do... Uh, fade over time. They don't have the same oomph that they once had when they were brand new. And so that's going to happen. And what Apple did, and, the, and there was giant backlash with this because they, they hid it from, from the public. They basically said, we know that these are, sl- these are dying or, or slowly dying. What we're going to do is we're going to slow down the phone to extend the life of the battery. And one of the problems with uh, the Apple uh, phones themselves is they're they do not have a user replaceable battery. Most of the Android and the Windows, you just pull yeah. the back off and throw another battery in. With Apple, it's just not that simple uh, because it's all all built in. Um, now, having said that, uh, that's what they consciously said: we'll we'll slow it uh, the operating system down to save life of this battery, right. and the devices will last longer. But they really should have been transparent about that and told the public this is what we're doing, because then uh, the user could make that decision. So after that backlash, they created this um, choice, whether you didn't care about your battery and you could turn it on full performance or not. So there was the choice. Now, uh, and this really is not really that big to me, because what they did is they brought out, or they're bringing out in September a new operating system, the iOS 12. And the iOS 12 is really simply better and, and leaner and sleeker operating system, and that's with any any of the companies. They're going to do that. Many would say do, many. Sorry to interrupt. Many would say though, every time I update, it will slow my phone down. Well, they were conscious that with this because of this backlash, so they they made an, an effort, and, and they're not saying much. They're saying things like load times on applications will be up to fifty uh, percent faster. Well, it's really not. Nothing great, but again, uh, the technology's there. They can make a faster operating system, and they were—they did make a conscious effort to look at these older devices. So they're saying 2013 devices and up should see some sort of breath of new life uh, with with the iOS 12, which will be out in September. Derek Sardo has been with us, president of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca, to find out more. Derek, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great day. Anytime, you too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.